Hello, and welcome back to the Cuse Conversations podcast. My name is John Boccasino, the communications specialist in Syracuse University's Office of Alumni Engagement. So we have cases, we have deaths, and we have vaccinations, right? This database that we started just kind of came in handy because it was already using data that was public. This tribe shared it, you know, with their community. So we just grabbed it through in a spreadsheet and just shared it, right? And then pretty soon we wanted to have data come to us because it was a lot of work for me to go to people. I was probably spending like in the beginning for four to six hours a day trying to get the data and talk to people and build relationships. And then pretty soon the data started coming to us. Well, folks, today on the podcast, our guest is Jordan Bennett-Begay. She currently is the managing editor of The Indian Country Today, a national multimedia news publication covering Indigenous issues. She earned her master's degree in magazine, newspaper, and online journalism from the SI Newhouse School of Public Communications in 2016. She's also very passionate about Indigenous issues. We're going to talk about a lot of the issues that are facing our Indigenous population today in 2021 with Jordan Bennett-Begay. Jordan, thank you for making the time to join us on the podcast. Hi, thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. (laughs) The fact that journalism is coming under siege, uh, the importance of discerning what's fake news versus what's real news. How do you feel, uh, you know, things are going from the state of journalism's perspective? Well, I think for one, the pandemic has been definitely, you know, thrown us back for a loop, um, just because who knew in our lifetime that this would be a, one of the biggest stories of our careers, or even probably the biggest story. That, that's incredible, but to be on the front lines of that and just witnessing it and experiencing it, it's, I could not have imagined, you know, this when I was at Newhouse. <laughs> Was there a moment when you as a journalist realized that this was going to be bigger, the pandemic, than just your normal story? Because as as someone who's in a newsroom, you know, you can explain to our audience that stories come around and some come and some go. This has clearly been a once in a generation uh, issue with the pandemic. Yeah, um, probably, you know, I... I think like a lot of other um, journalists out there was keeping an eye on it when it was in China and just looking at the maps and looking uh, at its growth and it pretty soon jumping from country to country. And I realized, I wonder, if, and I realized, and I asked myself, I wonder if tribes are prepared for this because um, this is going to hit everyone. So I started, fortunately, I already had sources in the health and you know, medical field. So I started reaching out and asking questions. Um, seeing if tribes are ready for it. And the question was, nope, they're not, which is kind of my hypothesis in the beginning. But, and, you know, just diving into it, I started to try to keep an eye on and, you know, where the first cases were going to pop up in our communities because Indigenous communities are so, you know, community oriented. We, um, kinship is like one of our big values. And I mean, that's a common value across like, uh, you know, Indigenous communities. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of um, multi-generational households. Um, there is, you know, a lack of water. But I think the thing that really held us together as Native people is community. But it's also, you know, the chink in our armor that was going to get us. Um, that was going to co- contribute to this, you know, intense spread of this uh, virus. Yeah, because really when you think about comparing Indigenous communities to those non-Indigenous ones, yeah, you find families uh, outside of the Indigenous population where you have 
grandparents with parents and with children, three generations under one roof, but I would imagine it's way more prevalent in those indigenous communities. What kind of challenge did that then present when it came to containment and not just letting COVID run amok? When we go to these events, our first inclination is to hug people or greet people. <laughs> I mean, I was taught growing up that whenever I go to a family event, that you go around and say hi and shake hands. And, you know, and the same thing with, um, you know, tribal leaders in our communities are just community leaders. You go up and say hi, or they come to you and say hello. But at first, you know, when people are saying socially distance or don't touch each other, you know, do elbows, I think that was really difficult for um, just from what I was like reading online, all these, you know, stories from people in my community, my own parents, my own family members, um, you know, pretty soon they had to distance themselves. And at the beginning, you know, a lot of people, I think, you know, didn't really take it, not just in, in indigenous communities, but people all over the world in the country really didn't take it seriously. They didn't know how, you know, this would spread so quickly until, people started dying until the health system started to get overwhelmed. And I think that's when people are like, whoa, this is much bigger than we all realized and everything shut down, right? And even to the point in uh, a lot of indigenous communities, a lot of ceremonies were, uh, I guess, <laughs> discouraged because you have sweat lodges, you have ceremonies um, of all sorts. And, you know, the fact that tribal leaders are saying, tribal leaders and health professionals in our communities are saying, you know, maybe we should put a pause on this right now. Um, and I think that's what really uh, woke everyone up. Now, take me back to some of the calls that you were having. And again, knowing that you've got this background uh, in emergency management and also dabbling in public health, take us back to those beginning times, just what, how unprepared, I guess, were Indigenous communities to deal with the pandemic? Yeah, and yeah, I think at one point too, um, with this, you know, IHS, um, I guess to understand, you know, this, the federal government or the states has these treaty and trust obligations to tribal nations, right? It's something that happened when, you know, I think there's like over 300 treaties that we have with the federal government. Every single one of them pretty much has been broken. Um, but in all these treaties and a lot of, um, you know, these agreements with the federal government was that we get education and healthcare. And healthcare is, you know, from that we got the Indian Health Service, right? So they're historically uh, underfunded, as a lot of people already know. Um, and, you know, you have this huge system, you know, that's supposed to serve us and that's already kind of understaffed or there's a high turnover. Um, you know, it, it really like it was already there's just lack of investment in the healthcare system and the public health, you know, infrastructure already across the states, but also in native communities. Um, and it really presented itself, you know, during this pandemic, it really shown that we need to fix these. I mean, I think during this pandemic, you know, everyone was preaching to the choir, like this needs to be fixed. And then it's not until people were dying where they're like, this is what we've been saying. This is not good enough, you know? Um, something really needs to be done. We need, you know, more money to help fund these. We need more people. We need more health professionals and particularly more native health professionals because those are the ones who understand the community themselves, right? Just like journalism. If you want your story, you need uh, your native journalists to understand 
it's the same thing with like medicine as well. And a lot of it too was uh, also these tribal epidemiology centers across the country. There's 12 of them. Um, and to me, in my eyes, they're kind of like the Indian countries CDC, right? They're supposed to take care of the public health of Indian country. Um, you know, states are supposed to recognize them as these official institutes where they can share data because that's also a problem in Indian country is COVID data. But a lot of these, I think the states didn't see them, see a need to share the data because they're asking why, especially in states where they're like, there's no native people here. There's native people everywhere in every single like 50 states, you know, the country, even in plus DC, right? So there was just like already like, you know, a systematic problem in all these different areas that really um, the pandemic shined a light on. And now, you know, there's a lot of policies um, being introduced to try to fix these. How have you seen solutions to the COVID problem? Because if we don't, we're bound to repeat the same mistakes next time this comes around. So give us some good news. How, how have you seen uh, us rise to the challenge, if you will, and, and step up and resolve these issues? Um, and I think kindness goes a long way, right? Um, you know, a lot of people, I was telling just people, you know, friends I talked to, I really hope a lot of people, this is pandemic, I feel like it's going to make us all a lot kinder and be just more compassionate um, human beings. So for at least on Navajo, since that's where I'm from, um, when elders couldn't go out to the store, um, you know, grocery stores opened up early, specifically for elders or senior citizens, so they could go there, get their, um, you know, get what they needed and leave. So they don't have to, you know, put themselves at risk. A lot of Native people, you know, started GoFundMe's or nonprofits um, so they could get food for elders. Um, and, sit, and since uh, Navajo Nation is, you know, a vast, you know, we're so spread out there, there's so much space that some people, it takes an hour to get it to a grocery store, you know, and that means you have to have a job, which a lot of people are losing jobs. You have to have a car, which that's also, you know, hard to get you have to get gas. Um, so getting a gas station could be like, I don't know, 30 minutes, an hour away. So there's all, a lot of these living obstacles, but a lot of people who started these nonprofits during a pandemic started creating food boxes or creating really neat systems so they could deliver to like big uh, community centers. And it, it was just like, you know, people starting social uh, distance powers online because, hmm. you know, that was really... Um, fun there's this huge Facebook page that people started just sharing videos of them dancing and their regalia I was really fun just to see how you know that I think it was just really neat to see how Indian country really leverage it's their social media presence because I, I swear to you everybody uses Facebook that is a thing Twitter's there you know <laughs> it's for media personalities and journalists but Facebook's where it's at for native communities. That's how, of course, you air your laundry out. That's how, you know, you find missing shoes or missing dogs. I think I, I really hope after this that Indian country is so innovative to see what we can do. And, it, you know, and I hope it catapults us even further because um, some tribal colleges already don't have, you know, great Wi-Fi or great internet. So they, you know, so students can learn online. And, but the pandemic really shown that we need uh, better Wi-Fi in tribal communities um, just for that reason. Um, so students can't, you know, work from home or go to a local community center and, you know, get their degree there. 
I found it fascinating. There was a lot to unpack with that that question and answer exchange. <laughs> uh, I want to go back a little bit to the the blending, if you will, of the old world rituals and the modern day technology. I know a lot of churches and other religious organizations struggled transitioning services online. Uh, and you mentioned doing a lot of the religious ceremonies and those tribal ceremonies online. How did you see that play out? Was there an adjustment period? Was were certain leaders slow to embrace it? How did that all materialize? It, it did take some adjusting. Like I know sometimes, I think some complaints people were hearing were that you, some of these ceremonies should not be done that way. But there's also the counter argument saying with people saying, no, this is the only way it can happen. If we want to keep doing these long-term, this is what it's going to have to happen. We're going to have to go on zoom or Google meets or, you know, whatever online. That's just, there's just no way it can happen. If we want to keep doing these ceremonies that have been around for thousands of years. When it comes to new age data is everywhere. And you talked about Facebook and everyone uses Facebook and you're the indigenous community uses Facebook. Was data getting shared when it came to COVID uh, for indigenous tribes? And if it wasn't, what kind of challenges would that present to try to move the people forward if there wasn't sharing between local organizations and hospitals? Because you need to talk, the left hand needs to know what's going on with the right hand. Yeah, uh, that's, a, that's a great way to, you know, to explain it. <laughs> um, so even like to this day, data is still an issue for you know, indigenous communities. And uh, I remember like maybe um, in mid-March, no, beginning of March, the first uh, case entered uh, Umatilla, which is up in Oregon. And it was a non-native individual who worked in the tribal casino and we're all over that news. And pretty soon after that, you know, we kept trying to keep an eye out across Indian country where the next cases would be or where, you know, there'd be another outbreak. Pretty soon, like a handful of others um, came about. I think maybe a couple of weeks later, uh, my own tribe started, saw a huge outbreak after a weekend of community events. And that's where it just took off. And I remember um, our newsroom sharing like a lot of these Facebook links or like Twitter links or even like press releases. And at the time, uh, the Indian Health Service, I didn't really notice any daily updates about it or when I reached out to them. They would only, they, they wouldn't really confirm anything because I think they're still trying to get a handle on what was going on. And, you know, if we, when we did have that media call with them, with all these other reporters, they did confirm they had a few cases, but they would only tell us, you know, they're in the, one of these 12 regions in the country because IHS, the Indian Health Service, breaks um, the service regions down to 12 areas. And so they would only say, we have one area, I don't know, one case in Alga. That's all of Alaska. They wouldn't tell us what area. There would, there's another case in Navajo. There's another one in the Phoenix area. So this is like very vague. And a lot of uh, tribal citizens were wondering like, where, where is it at? What tribe, you know, are these cases popping up at? And so as more cases came about um, and people in our newsroom were sharing it on, you know, with everyone, I thought, oh, it'll be pretty neat to like see where this goes. And so I just opened up the spreadsheet and just threw it on there. And I was like, well, and so I had to like finesse with it a little bit, seeing what data was available to me and to try to fit this, you know, spreadsheet to what was there. Um, and I shared it with my editor. And he's like, well, this is great. Like nobody is doing this. We should share it. And I was like, oh, all right. And I thought, yeah, like no, nobody's doing this data already. So I said, all right, we'll make this public. And, you know, 
pretty much it was just a place for us to aggregate all the data. I mean, the data was already shared publicly, right, on Facebook, on press releases, radio, tribal radio stations, or even the tribe's websites. So it was just a place to put us all, um, you know, in one area. And also these tribal epidemiology centers um, have agreements with tribes. So if we want data, we're gonna have to talk to the tribe. So for example, if I went to California and I said, hey, do you have like this data set available? And I, you know, after looking at their website, you know, they have it broken down, but they wouldn't, it was very also vague. California would tell me, oh yeah, you have to talk to the tribes. And I was like, but there's more than a hundred tribes in California. Like, am I supposed to call every one of them? And I was like, this is crazy. I don't, I don't know if I can, I don't know if this is, you know, doable. So, so that was, you know, an obstacle in that, you know, in the data sharing. IHS was a, also one, but also um, in trying to figure out what was going on. That's where I learned that uh, tribal epicenters, the beginning had, a few of them at least, had trouble getting access to a lot of the state data um, so they can get the real, you know, live sharing or live tracking of this data that was happening. Um, and I think it was really a problem with the Urban Indian Health Institute, which they have, I think, 40 or 41 urban Indian health programs across the country in all of these metro areas. And so, you know, they have to worry about so many states where all of these um, health programs are located. And so that is you know, several state health databases they have to get to, which they're already having an issue with. So that was like a- another obstacle. So this database that we started just kind of came in handy because it was already using data that was public. This tribe shared it, you know, with their community. So we just grabbed it through in a spreadsheet and just shared it, right? And then pretty soon we wanted to come, have the data come to us because it was a lot of work for me to go to people. I was probably spending like the beginning for four to six hours a day trying to get the data and talk to people and build relationships and then pretty soon the data started coming to us um but i think you know when we talk when you're mentioning obstacles one of the things that you know i i think i noticed in going into this and starting that project was one you know i had to have a background on how the indian health system works it's not just you know ihs health clinics or direct health facilities they call them there are also tribal health clinics, which are run and operated by the tribe. I also have had to understand Iranian health programs, how they fit into the picture. There's also, um, you know, private clinics that people can go to. So how can I get this data? Where can I get it from? But also how in that system, where is the data shared? Where is that going? Right. And how was that getting to the CDC or state health departments? I think that was a challenge to do, but it's also kind of fun, (laughs) Um, kind of fun to understand that and see how it works. It kind of just took off. um, It started growing and growing and it was a lot to handle in the beginning. And then this other, this native epidemiologist, her name's uh, Talia Kwanda Lacey, and she reached out and she said, hey, I got the spreadsheet. I think it's great because I think what a lot of people liked about it was one, it was straight, it was data straight from tribes. And that's what nobody was like looking at. And that's the most reliable data from what a lot of people said. And two, it was public and you and we presented our homework, right? We put it out there for scrutiny. And three, a lot of tribal leaders uh, really liked being shared, you know, shared that, sharing that data with them was really nice. Because I think in journalism, you know, we talk about parachuting parachuting journalism going in and out of a community and not, you know, having any long-term commitments. 
um, and it doesn't come from a genuine place. In medicine, it's the same thing with medical research, right? And a lot of Native people have that historical, that have that history with medicine. People going in during research, coming out, and then just leaving and not giving the data back so that tribes can use it for whatever policies they have, for whatever, you know, health protocols that they need to update, you know, and so that was like a huge, I, a, an integral part of the project for me was make sure that this was giving back to the community so they can use it in any way they wanted to. John Hopkins found it uh, from Talia because she was an alumni of, and she connected us because they, Johns Hopkins wanted to do something similar, but they didn't want to recreate the work. So I went in and told them about my experience. I told you guys about how, what I learned and you know, the difficulties in collecting data. So now um, we've went into a partnership with them yeah, almost a year ago now. And they're working on a map to present the data. And so we have cases, we have deaths, and we have vaccinations, right? So we have volunteers from all over the country helping out. And they're pretty much public health or I think med students, mostly public health from around the country. And they're helping you know, talk to tribes and so they can get the data. I do want to switch gears a little bit talking about um, the vaccinations. And you mentioned there's inherent uh, mistrust with indigenous populations and the federal government with the history of treaties being uh, violated. Um, And we're seeing this with non-indigenous populations too, with there's vaccine deniers. There's people that don't want to believe the science. Has there been mistrust in the indigenous communities over the vaccine because it's the government coming in and saying, this will make you better, this will make you immune. Has there been any level of mistrust between the indigenous peoples uh, wanting to receive the vaccine? Uh, there definitely has been mistrust um, still, especially with the vaccine. You know, like the beginning of the pandemic, people were wondering, this is a hoax, but it really wasn't. And the same goes for this vaccine. But, you know, actually, and and then now um, there is this recent study act that came out from Abigail Echo Hawk. She's the director of the Urban Indian Health Institute um, up in Seattle. And she tested this, you know, this theory if people are hesitant or not hesitant. And so she you know, did a sample size of so many thousand people, Native people. And a lot of them said they would get the vaccine. Um, and I think it was of that sample size, it was about 75% of people would get the vaccine. Um, and the reason was the number one reason why I'm going to get it is because they wanted to protect their community too. So even though there's that mistrust there, there's also, you know, the, on the other side of the coin that people wanted to get it to protect their community. They wanted to protect, you know, at least for us, we wanted to protect our baby, like one of my nephews who has a heart condition, right? Um, we wanted to protect my grandpa who was, you know, alive back then. We wanted to, you know, just protect each other. And so we can see each other again which I think was really, you know, really phenomenal. During the last pandemic, um, you know, the vaccine was actually what helped save us. So we're trying to tell people this is, you know, what needs to be done. How did you become interested in journalism in the first place? What really lit that fire for you to take on this type of career? I accidentally took a class in undergrad. <laughs> and it, I, I, I like laugh every time I say because I'm like oh my gosh um who would have known <laughs> I needed a break uh, so I went to school at Fort Lewis College in Durango Colorado I was focusing on athletic, on athletic training which is very much like sports medicine 
So it was very science-based, it was very time-intensive, and it was just so much science, and I love science. But um, when I needed a break from all that, I was like, I have to do something else. And I, uh, we had these, like, weekly reflections of, like, uh, treating athletes or injuries, and we had, you know, in order for all the information to stick, we had to, like, do weekly reflections, which are in, like, emails. And so my <laughs> my reflections would be, like, pages long everybody in my cohort was so angry they're like you're raising the bar why are you doing this and I'm like I like to write like what can I say I'm like I'm I don't know what to tell you so I was like oh maybe I need to go write some more or I need a break from science you know during one semester and I was like okay let me look I looked at the course um description there was this class called new media writing and it said like blogging and video and I was like sure I'll do that I was like I've always liked media I was like how fun I love following um award shows back then well I kind of still do and I would like back then before Twitter before I was into Twitter and I was still trying to make sense of it I would go on Facebook and like share things about award shows and I wanted to be the next like Ryan Seacrest so I signed up for this course got to the class I sat down my professor she uh from what I remember she worked for the New York Times and she sat down and she took a at us and it said news writing 101 or something. And I was like, what? I, I don't know what to do. <laughs> I absolutely had no idea. I was like, what did I get myself into? Is this the same class? So my professor was like, I hope I'll help you just take it. It'll be okay. And I thought, oh, okay, this is different. Okay, I'll do it. I ended up liking it a lot more than I thought. And it's so funny that first class. It was way before technology. Man, I remember, you know, before we would, uh, air quote, create um, like multimedia packages, air quote, multimedia packages. <laughs> and we would write the story, right? And we would present. And then we would also have to like uh, sketch out how it would look on a website on tape. So it'd be like, all right, you know, do wireframes. And this is where the story would go. Okay, this is where we have a video talking about this. And we, you know, we have, it'll be like a little box with an X and like, or they could sketch like, you know, an image there if you want. So we had to create our own version of a multimedia package on paper, on computer paper, and just turn it in along with the story. And I think that's just so funny and just so incredible to see how far technology has and that we're actually doing it now. <laughs> it's just incredible how it started. And after that, I took class after class and pretty soon became like a minor in undergrad. But I needed more, like, I guess, in a sense, hands-on training for journalism. So I started seeking opportunities outside the classroom, like during the summer or during like the winter, like how can I get more, in a sense, clips? Um, so I applied for, I think, the American Indian Journalism Institute um, in 2011. I applied for the year before and haven't had this experience. And so I didn't get in. So I was like, all right, I'll try next year. So I tried again. And it's the same professor who... I took a class with she shared this um, with me and I got in and um, I took like a 10-day training course um, with them and I met a lot of great like native journalists who I still know today and doing great things and after that training I did a 10-week internship with our local paper in my town and it was just really incredible just to get to you know get sent in a newsroom. What was it then so you go from getting this uh, athletic training degree from Fort Lewis College. You have the minor in, in journalism, communications, and English. 
And then you apply to Syracuse University and you come to Syracuse and Newhouse as a graduate minority fellow. What was it about Newhouse and Syracuse that really just called out to you? My dad watched a lot of basketball. Um, You know, it's like Indian country sport along the cross. And I always just like saw, you know, Syracuse's logo on, you know, the TV. And I don't know, I think they're just, I had a feeling, I don't know how to explain it. It's, I went to this um, powwow in Albuquerque, New Mexico. It's called the Gathering of Nations. And it's dubbed like the largest powwow in North America. Um, There's vendors, there's dancing. It's for about three days, like the whole weekend. There's just thousands of people there. You see, I see everyone I know there. (laughs) And there's like night activities. It's so fun. I, I really missed it. When I, when I went there one year with my parents and we like to go walk around the vendors and just check it out or, you know, go buy jewelry or just see what's going on and go visit with people. I remember walking to this by all the college, um, the colleges and businesses with booths and I saw Syracuse and I was like, whoa, cool. And I saw this native woman there and it was Tammy Blueworth Kennedy and she's Oneida. Yeah. yeah, she's a admissions counselor. So we hit it off and we're just talking and she asked me what I was interested in and I said oh I want to go to public health probably and I'm also considering PA school and she's like well just she started giving me brochures she gave me her card and I went back home and I had this cork board I just stick anything up there like it's quotes it's brochures it's whatever inspires me you know or even like places where I don't lose business cards <laughs> so I, tacked <laughs> it, I tacked it to her business card up there and a year goes by maybe a year and a half and this is when I was really concerning. I was like, I don't know if athletic training's for me. And I think I was just so burned out from it. I was like, I love it, but I was like, I just don't know if I can do this the rest of my life. So I just interned with the CDC that summer. Um, and then I also did another, the Native American Journalism Fellowship with Naja, um, which funny now I'm like a board member of, so it's crazy how things work out. And <laughs> So I did this journey, this a fellowship with Naja, and that sold me. At, like I knew after a week after doing that, after that great experience there, I was like, this profession is for me. It's very, you know, it's, it suits my personality. You get to travel, you get to talk to people, you get to learn something new every single day. I, I just loved it. And I was like, well, J school it is. And at that point, I was like looking for all these journalism schools online. And I remember like laying in bed, and I was so exhausted thinking, what other place is there? Because grad school is a lot of money. I'm going to need like a scholarship or I think I was just spent and I just didn't know what to do. And I thought I was like exhausting all my options. And I glanced at my little cork board and I was like, oh, let me look at Tammy. And I was like, her, her, a year later, her card was sold. I was like, let me go see if she's still there. So I reached out to her or I think I reached, I think I checked the website first. And I was like, let me see what they have journalism programs. And I saw a new house and I was like, oh, they have a fellowship. I can apply for that. And I looked at the deadline. I was like, okay. So, you know, marking my calendar and I emailed Tammy and I applied for new house and I didn't. And it's so funny. Like when people say like, like how big new house is and how such a prestigious university is and the fellowship, I was like, I had no idea from that experience. I realized that I needed a native community, a strong native support system. And so Syracuse you know, I saw that it was, although it was a huge university, Newhouse felt like a family to me. And I also saw that the Native Student Program was there too. So there's a lot of Haudenosaunee students going 
to school at SU. Um, it was actually a couple at the time when school at uh, Newhouse. And, you know, it just felt like a good fit for me. I felt like I was at home there. When you look at the impact that Newhouse had on your journalism career, what are some ways you can think of that Newhouse has helped mold your career today? I I really liked the magazine MNO program. Well, back then it's called MNO. Um, <laughs> they... I like the fact that I could look at, you know, magazine, newspaper, and online and see the differences and also similarities because now I use all of those skills. <laughs> I use all of those skills, like, in my job now, including the editing job. Because um, uh, I came into this position as a reporter producer. Then I was the Washington editor. So I, wa- I uh, managed our bureau in Washington. And then I grew into the deputy managing editor position and now I'm managing editor. And I... Uh, I didn't have, I had some editing experience, but, you know, in the sense of like editing my own stuff and maybe my bosses, because we need to have more than a pair of eyes on a story. But I, Professor Gallagher, I remember her saying once, um, she taught using, and I remember her saying that writing and editing have two different complete skill sets. And I was like, what? No, I don't believe that. And I was like, I feel like they're the same. Because like, at least that's when I, whenever I wrote a copy, I would always edit it myself and you know it's the same system but now that I'm actually editing every day and like I definitely see what she means (laughs) I'm like oh you're right I'm sorry I was wrong (laughs) um you were so right um so I just always like think about all these like little nuggets that I learned up there um from different classes like Professor Shaheen I loved his magazine writing classes and you know pretty much but from him, I, I took away like painting, you know, when you do a profile or story, you're trying to bring something to life using words. And so focusing on moments in a person's life. And that's the storytelling I definitely wanted to do for Indian country. And the internship experience I had at Syracuse.com, not only did I gain clips, but also I realized at that time after that, I was never going to work for a mainstream newsroom because you know, although I'm really grateful for Newhouse and what they taught me, I was, and part of those, probably that you know, one lesson they taught me was I don't want to work in mainstream news because I had white editors. I had older white men editors who I had to constantly uh, convince that something was a story and when it was about indigenous people. And that was really frustrating. And I, I remember in Standing Rock was happening at the time. It was huge. I remember telling them, I'm going to go, I want to go to North Dakota. There's this big story. I think it, a lot of our readers would find it helpful. And they're like, oh, I don't know if they would want it. I don't know if it pertains to it. And I'm like, what is reservation down the road? You have the Haudenosaunee Scholarship at SU. You're in Haudenosaunee territory. How does it not pertain to your readers? And so finally, I just had it for two weeks. I was like, well, I'm going. My professor said it was okay. I got, I was like, I'm leaving. I'm, be- I'm going to be off. Here's my number and email. Bye. <laughs> you need to let me know. I just like left. And I was like, nope. So I there Labor Day weekend in 2016. And that's actually when the dog attacks happened. When, um, you know, when the bulldozing was happening and a lot of people were attacked by dogs. And it was just a really you know, eye-opening experience. Um, and I came back and, of course, they're all about it. And they're like, what stories do you have? I'm like, now you want to hear it. <laughs> now yeah. that the day after the dog attacks happened, everybody was, every mainstream, you know, NBC was there, CNN was there. And I was like, seriously, this is like 
we were ahead of the story like so long ago and I just like got frustrated at that and I think it was like a blessing in disguise you know that I really wanted to lead help lead like an indigenous newsroom and tell the stories and now I'm doing that and we have a lot of uh you know native journalists who come from all types of communities across the country who you know and who have all different types of networks right and that's why I think I'm so grateful for because even I'm still learning Indian country is so huge. Is it difficult knowing your passion for social justice and activism? You mentioned being uh, at Standing Rock to cover the Dakota Access Pipeline protests and knowing that you have to still be objective as a journalist and a managing editor. How do you walk that tightrope between uh, you know, your passion for social justice and also your passion for journalism? It's the same thing. I like to think of like this example that somebody pointed out to me um, when I was really struggling with this. And, you know, a lot of people were saying we can't have Native journalists covering Indigenous issues. And like, why not? Like, we know the culture, we have the background, we know, you know, we just have so much more that will push the story even further than a non-Native journalist have um, has in the back of their mind. And so what we're showing here in Newsroom is like, you know, there is also a lot of Indigenous excellence and Indigenous like brilliance um, to our stories and to our histories too. And so it is, I think as long, you know, as long as we can strive to be, you know, know our biases, check in with ourselves and tell a story fair, be as fair of a, you know, tell a fair story, be fair to everyone involved in it. And I think that's what, you know, be fair and be true. And that's what I try to live by, um, especially in what I do now. It's really been a, a fascinating conversation here with Jordan Bennett Begay, the managing editor of Indian Country Today, uh, an accomplished journalist and activist and somebody who really has shined a light on some interesting stories regarding issues of COVID affecting indigenous populations around our country Jordan, I have to say, thank you so much for shedding the light and for taking the time to talk. I really enjoyed our time today. Oh, definitely. Thank you so much. Thanks for checking out the latest installment of the Cuse Conversations podcast. My name is John Boccasino signing off for the Cuse Conversations podcast.